what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Pat, it's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. They have new sponsors. But we've also got some remaining ones as well that we've got to bless them. So it turns out we're actually behind because people jumped into our Patreon and sent us much money. And we didn't realize. Until they said, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, where's our ads? Yeah. Here it is. We're doing it. You know where you should get dog training equipment in North America now? Who? Mojo Dog Co. Mojo Dog Co. Yeah. MojoDogCo.com mm-hmm. is a website. There's a real store. It's in Chicago. Yep. But it's a website you can totally go to and they pretty much sell everything. They've got mills. They've got training gear they've got apparel there's food there's dog beds like it's a legit store I've and been you've there. been there i've you? been there yeah yeah you've I, witnessed I, it firsthand you've I, smelt um, the odors you've tasted the food you've run on the mills i committed theft i stole a tub <laughs> i think i was allowed to take it too late now i've got it I, yeah. I, I just trained with it today so basically he's paying us patreon money for you to steal his toys yeah it's okay. a it's a great klein tug it's fantastic a klein tug yeah oh, you know who else sells a klein tug who the Buffhead, the OG Buffhead. Really? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He, he, in fact, he does. I got from the Buffhead a Klein flirt pole, which all the dogs favor over all the other ones. Really? Yes. They you like shouldn't that. allow toy preferences, Len. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I don't. They do. They choose what they want. We have two places that you could get dog training equipment. Yes. MojoDogCode.com. Yeah, in North America. Yeah. And Einzawiener. Yep. Dot Buffhead. Yep. <laughs> You know what? You know it's a really cool product. The Rowdy Hound Dog Kennel. It's the kennel that attaches, like it's a crate that attaches to your motorcycle. Yeah. So you can take your dog anywhere that you're traveling if you own a motorcycle and yep. you want to take your dog with you. If safely, I owned a motorcycle, safely, if safely. I owned a motorcycle or a dog that wanted to ride one, yep, I would 100% get one. I own a motorcycle. You should get one. I should get one. You should get one. I can see you a little Frenchy hanging yep. off the back of your motorbike. Mm. Yeah, I think that Mando would probably cause me to come off my bike. He yeah. would probably rock around like crazy on yeah. that thing. But yeah, a little Frenchie. little dog like what George Kittridge does, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful bloke and a dear friend of ours. Sponsor of the show. Sponsor of the show. And he takes his little blue healer, which mm-hmm. is an Australian dog. Mm-hmm. And George has been out here in Australia. He knows all about Australia. He stayed mm-hmm. in Australia. He's done it all. Mm-hmm. But he actually takes his little blue healer. And he rides her all around the state and he teaches other people how to do it as well with their dogs. So not only does he sell the product, but he trains people on how to use it as well. That's great. It is. You know, he should get everybody to do a big road trip up to Canada. Yeah. You know what they could do in Canada? What's that? Go to Dan Croft. Ah, Dan Croft. Geez, they could watch a puppy class there, couldn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're doing seminars as well. Really? Yeah, they've got seminars, they've got teaching, they've got education. But as I spoke to Daniel, who runs Dan Croft, Mm -hmm. he was telling me all about their amazing puppy classes and they do some kick-ass social media. Yeah, they do. They've got some pretty extreme type of breeds over there that they've got them all under perfect control, like all these American Staffies. They've got all these bull breeds that people complain about, whinge about and say they can't be trained. And Mm -hmm. Dan Croft has them doing not only 
beautiful stays, but they also have them on balls. Mm. So they have the dog, Incredible. you know, like inside a tyre and the dog's doing beautiful drop stays while they're at peace and at harmony and somebody's walking around, all the owners are there with the dogs, they're having a great time. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I bet those dogs are well conditioned and healthy. Yep. Yeah. How would they do that? Probably the best way is to get yourself some canine suticles. Have hey, you been using it? I have actually, no shit, like jokes aside, Remy was circling the drain. He was in bad shape. And yeah. I said to Narelle, hey, I want to try and get him back in condition, mm. see how much longer I can get from him. Because like the mind is willing, but the body is weak. Yep. And so she hooked me up with all the right things and he's a million times better. In fact, he's actually better than he has been in you know probably two years. And you did a really cool social media content for Narelle the other day, which he really appreciated. I make sweet reels, bro. You do. Yep. You are pretty good with your reels. Again, all jokes aside, I'm not just saying this because Narelle's my wife. I make this very clear, but she what? Is, she's actually a genius with that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. When other people are sort of relaxing and kicking back, I know people are busy and they've got things to do, but Narelle reads white papers. She's doing everything. She's always looking how she can improve the standards in a dog's life. So like She actually amazes me. She's mm. very, very industrious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mojo Dog Co. Yep. Einz a wiener. Einz a wiener. Mm-hmm. Rowdy Hound. Rowdy Hound. Dan, Dan Croft. Croft. Yep. yep. Thank you all very, very much. You guys sponsor the show. If you want to support the show, support them. Yes. They're the place to get the gear. Yeah. And if you get into Patreon and you tick that box, just know that we don't check that very often. <laughs> yeah, so you've got to tell <laughs> you us. You've got you to you you shoot us a message. Yeah, it's fine for you to let us know. We really appreciate you. We'd started off our shows talking about some of our new attributes, things that we've got. Yeah. And we would never have got that without Patreon support. It's That's Patreon right. that pays our bills. All right. Enjoy the show. And our sponsors. Enjoy the sponsors. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Interesting feedback from the last episode. A lot of it, actually. A lot of interesting feedback. Yeah. Mainly positive. Yeah. How about yourself? Yeah, I've only heard good things. Mm. I mean, people aren't going to reach out and tell us dickheads to our face. They'll, well, they'll, just, they'll just text it to each other behind our backs. Yeah, some, <laughs> sometimes it happens. I mean, sometimes I've had yeah. we've had controversial episodes where people have reached out and said, hey, you or Pat said something that resonated in a wrong way with me. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. It's a good part of the conversation. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't mind having a conversation around like that because I think we've proclaimed – multitudes of time it's just thoughts and feelings about things that we see some of it may be based in fact and some of it is largely conversation Mm. that we're talking about experiences that we ourselves have and people in the industry have one piece of conversation i did like was one of the people who listens to our show regularly and does provide feedback said that well i guess from their words is they felt that we brought some passion back to our show that's been missing for a little bit of time really some yes, passion some back passion back right okay they said it felt like we had returned to our old days really where we were a little bit more passionate and a go. little bit more risque with what we we're prepared to talk about oh my goodness mm. risque risque right okay I took that in its stride and I appreciate- Take um, that on board. Yeah. It was welcomed information. It's important to know what people like to listen to. Mm. It's pointless getting in front of uh, these microphones and talking about things that people just don't want to listen to, that they just switch off and say, ah, this is just word salad. That's true. Yeah. It's interesting, and you know who I'm talking about. Well, there's a couple of them, but it's interesting watching some of the train wrecks on social media and the dog space (laughs) (laughs) that just- 
it's just amazing what comes out of their mouth. What made me think of that was when I brought up the word word salad before and you said it on the other night. Yeah. When I was showing you a clip of the rantings of someone. Oh, right. Yeah. And, okay. Now I know who you're talking about. And then yeah. I compared it to listening to Charles Manson. Yeah. Because it's just incredible how many people are have this belief or this mindset that they're absolute and they're all that and more. And it's thus, it's like listening to the rantings of Manson. Yeah. It's just incredible. It's entertainment. For yeah. me, I find it entertainment. I don't know whether, you know, to feel sorry for the person or whether it, I don't know how to feel about it sometimes, so I just laugh about it. I just think I don't know whether it's been said with a bit of tongue-in-cheek with it. Or I think it, it is. Yeah? I think it is. Okay. Uh, we shouldn't talk about it, like, because I think he's playing a character. I think what happened with that person you know, it's worth talking about, I suppose. Yeah. I think what happened with him, and I don't want to say his name because I've never met the guy, but a video came out of him. You know, it was pretty shitty training and it got a lot of traction. People were talking about how he was the worst ever. And I think that he liked the attention. And then I think what happened was he was like, oh, that brought a lot of attention. If you want me to be the shitty villain dog trainer, I'm prepared to be that and has just totally lent into it. Okay. I feel like he's like, that's why I think it's like, it's like Andrew Dice Clay. I think that he's like, oh, that's the character I'm choosing to play. Mm. That's the feel I get anyway. But I mean, we shouldn't carry on about it because I don't want to name the person. I don't want to shit mouth them either. I actually quite enjoy his social media because I look at it through the lens of entertainment. Mm. Like I look at it and go, this is a person who is just creating content for me to consume and enjoy. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd like I definitely wouldn't let him train my dog. Not a chance. Yep. But I enjoy his social media. Mm. That's going to lead some curiosity into everybody. <laughs> I know. At the moment. I know. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, mm. I opened up my Facebook yep. and it says, congratulations, we've changed you over to a professional account. I was like, oh, what does that mean? And so far I can't really discern too much of a difference in what that means. Yeah, I've had that message too and I don't know what it means. Yeah, Mm. except what I have noticed for sure is now I get targeted ads from social media coaches. Uh, (laughs) So I think that- Are you getting the emails? Is that what's coming Oh, I get tons. I get spammed all the time. But like coming up, especially in my Instagram feed, is ads for social media coaches. So people who, you know, I guess now that they've like flagged me as a professional account, Yep. Now they're like, oh, well, we serve you the ads of people who use social media professionally, right? Mm. So one of the ones that came up the other day, it's like, you know, someone dancing, at, like, because they're a social media coach, right? That's their job. And so they're dancing to stupid music, pointing at the things as they flash on the screen, yep. telling me that I should make a reel from that sound because it's trending. And the reel should be about, the three biggest mistakes new people make in your industry. Yeah. That's what people, they're like pointing to the thing. And it well, says, that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously not because I follow through. But then I thought to myself, first of all, I'm not making that real, but okay. Then I thought, what are the three biggest mistakes people make in my industry? And, you know, like I started sort of thinking if I was going to make that, which I'm not, but if I was going to, how would I make a real, a 60 second piece of content explaining the three biggest mistakes new people make into my industry? So I unpacked that a little bit and I thought, who are the new people in my industry? And like, rather than dog trainers, I thought, you know, the people we serve, our customers, the three biggest mistake that they make, I'm thinking it's people with a new dog, like Mm -hmm. new dog owners. 
And so I sort of meditated on that. I was like, what do I think is the three biggest mistakes that they make? And I thought I wanted to explore that a little bit and go long form on what I was advised to be short form. Okay. So number one is? Number one is that I think that when a new person tends to get a puppy, they socialize it poorly. Mm. And I think that can have a couple of different like subsets. I think that it can be not socialized at all. I think, you know, we follow the advice of vets or whatever that say, don't take the dog out of the house until it's 16 weeks old. Mm. And I think we have to be very careful saying, don't do that. I don't do that. I've never have, and probably never will. So long as I live in the area that I live within, because I think that my chances of contracting parvo or similar are low in the area that I live. I think that I don't take the dog to high risk areas, but I for sure socialize the dog. Mm. But I do say that with caution because what I hear a lot of dog trainers, and I've certainly been one in the past, say, no, 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 take that dog straight out. Take it straight out. Well, it depends where you live, right? Like I think that you do have to take into account the instances of infectious disease and all that kind of stuff in the area where you live, as well as your ability to protect that puppy when you do take it out. I have a question for you on, I'm interested in your thoughts Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we have discussed this, but it's relevant to Mm -hmm. this topic. How do you feel based on that comment from the veterinary association as such in general across the globe that they advise people not to take their dogs out and socialize them extensively and be very mindful and cautious of the real risk of coming into contact with parvo and how detrimental that could be to a puppy. And yet they run puppy training and socialization inside a vet clinic. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've covered that extensively. I think that one of the things I think that's interesting though, is I think I don't know if they're still giving that information. Is that like, they all say that? That's difficult to answer. I think there's probably more pragmatic vets now that are listening to the advice of people in training and behavior and realize it's probably not the best advice, but giving it as a cautionary tale rather than insistence. Mm. Because certainly in some of the vets that I've seen, they've been insistent. Do not take this dog out. You will get parvo. Like yeah. they've literally said it, creating the horror and creating this mental image that your dog is literally going to liquefy from inside out if you take it out and it gets parvo. Yeah. Whereas I've had vet nurses that have come and done the NDTF course with me, the practical side, and they've come in and said, we don't do that at our clinic. Mm. We tell people that there is a risk. Here is the real information around it. We advise that you are very sensible and and cautious and practical about how you expose your puppy during that time Mm -hmm. because there is a risk of getting it. So all they say is we do our due diligence and tell people that if you take your dog to areas and parks and filthy areas where dogs have been pissing and fecal matter all over the place, then there is a high risk of getting parvo. Yeah. But parvo is also earthborne, as we know. They're spores and they are released into the soil. They Mm -hmm. come from the soil and they're transmitted that way. So you can step in it and and bring it home in your shoes. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you bring home soil from a place that's got parvo spores in there, you can bring it home and transfer it into your backyard. And people have done that. People have contracted parvo and never taken their dogs off site and Mm -hmm. they've still got parvo. So there is a risk of that happening. The APCA, the Australian Pet Care Association, just put out a blanket statement to all the vets in the industry and are holding them at task to tell people not to call it kennel cough anymore, but to call it canine cough, the true name of the actual virus. Right, okay. They said- We're focusing on the big issues, are we? Well, (laughs) the point is, is that it's slander 
to okay. call that kennel cough. We're in the kennel industry, so you right, know, okay. We're in an industry where people immediately think that if you go to a kennel, it just lives here. But there is always the only way that we get kennel cough in is from patient zero, who is a dog that comes in from the outside and brings it into our kennel. Yeah, yeah. So it does not live here. Yeah. It can't live here. It's a hostile environment for canine cough to run rampant inside the kennels. It's a bit of wordplay, but it's accurate as well. And it infuriates everybody in the industry where they will leave a review saying, oh, I got kennel cough from the kennel, blah, blah, blah. How do you know you weren't patient zero? How do you know you weren't the dog that brought it in and infect? You can infect it like it's like COVID. You you are likely to get more likely to get COVID from going out into public spaces and being in, in large public areas where people are coughing and sneezing and mm. leaving matter around where you're going to contract it. That's just one of those things. Mm. But, you know, now that we're talking about that sort of veterinary application, mm. It is important for people in the veterinary community out there to work well and work nicely with the industry that, you know, they do actually get a lot of work and a lot of support from. Yeah. We all support each other. Yeah. You know, as we've said in various different episodes along the lineup is we're not spanking vets. We're not talking down to them. We just want to work with them. We, yeah. We want to just have a professional relationship with each other and we do. We have a really good relationship with a lot of people. I just think it's nicer if we communicate facts well. And the good thing is, is that vets have responded and said, hey, yeah, you're right. It's It, yeah, yeah. it would be much more professional of us to name it as it is. It's canine cough. Right. Okay. Yeah. On the socialization thing, you know, it's been more than 10 years since I've been to a vet with a puppy that didn't know that I was a trainer and has given me the spiel. Good. Thanks, vets. No, but so I haven't heard, I don't know what they say to people these days. And I've had plenty of clients when they say, oh, I've got this puppy and I can't take it out to the 16 weeks. And I say, ah, don't worry about that. In this area, you'll be right. Mm. And they all just go, ah, sweet. So like, they're obviously not getting it too drilled into them by anybody. You know what I mean? I think the nice thing they stopped doing was recommending vaccinations every year and changing their recommendations to having even titer tests or teeter tests, what you want to call it. I like that. I like the progressiveness in the veterinary community mm-hmm. that even our own Australian group, the Australian Veterinary Association, the AVA, got together and said, hey, let's look at it as more of a three-year plan than an insistence on an every-year plan. Mm. That's good. Those sort of things are cool. Yeah. All right. So, hey, back to the topic. Yeah. Is that uh, – so poor socialization. It, well, socialization done incorrectly, I think, is the first mistake that new dog owners make. Mm. And I think – that can take the form of, like we said, not socializing at all. Mm-hmm. But that is just as bad, I think, as going overboard. Yep. And I think there's a couple of ways that going overboard can go bad as well, is I think that, you know, socialization, you have to be careful. And I think that most people, for the most part, we kind of understand that a puppy is a, a precious little baby, mm. really, and that you have to sort of manage their exposure and be careful in what you actually introduce them to. But, of course, I think that there's – you see it, people just rock down the dog park with their eight-week-old puppy. And so never mind the medical implications of that, but I think then the issue is like that is not a safe environment for most dogs, let alone an eight-week-old puppy. And the chances of something going wrong are pretty big, yeah, pretty high risk of you know some sort of incident that will lead to a negative experience. But similarly, I think that- I'm glad to hear you acknowledge that online. Yeah. (laughs) But I think similarly though, like those negative experiences can happen anywhere. Mm. You know what I mean? So like, I think that, you know, it's not like you just don't take your puppy to a dog park and you'll be right. You can have a weird person give a a weird interaction to the dog and that can set you back. Yep. You can have just simple things like a, a siren go off unexpectedly wherever you are that can cause issues, all these sorts of things. 
there's the example of not taking the dog anywhere. And then there's the example of taking the dogs too many places and putting the dog in, in unnecessary risk. And then I also think there's a third thing that can go wrong in that like types of socialization, I think is that people who think of socialization in this, like you've got to create positive experiences nonstop. Very few people just take their dog places and let the dog have, you know, neutral experiences, just actually experience stuff. Yeah. For the most part, we see people with puppies and they're always got the bag of food and they constantly trickling food to the dog the whole time and clicking with it and all that kind of stuff. And and I think that you can cause as many issues doing that as you can doing nothing. Yeah. I think in a couple of ways, the first is that, you know, if the dog is always so focused on you because you intend to pay the dog nonstop, it, then it's not really getting the- It's not a social environment. Yeah. It's, it's a training environment. Yeah. Well, it's just mm. so inwardly focused that yep. it's just like, hey, all I see is you, especially if you've got a really high food drive dog, yeah. all it is is just constantly looking to you for food and it's not actually taking anything in. Mm. I like that. I like your, your mindset around that because I think it creates a fictitious environment for the dog. Yeah. It's artificial- and it's not real life. Yeah. And part of the social habitual lifestyle is real life experiences. Yeah. Like really absorbing the trials and tribulations of what life offers. Yeah. And just, I think the main thing of socializing a dog, like a young dog, when I take it out and I'm like it, socialization is my intention. Yeah. Is I just want it to just be like, I don't want big events. Mm. I don't want something. I don't want to expose it to some big problem if I have to, I can recover that. So when I go out with a, a young dog, I take the clicker and I take the food and I've usually sort of loaded the clicker at this point, but it's rare that I actually use it, mm. right? Like I have those on me, but I have those on me at all times when I have a puppy anyway, just so that that doesn't become a cue for anything to the puppy. And I take the dog out and like only if something goes wrong, only if something out of my control, something that I didn't foresee, something happens and the, the puppy startles, that's an old click. And then I can be like, okay, I can recover you from that. I can like change your mindset around that. And I need to have loaded the clicker. That all needs to have been done. It's not like the clicker carries some magic power. I need to have that in place so that I can then, if I see that my dog's like, oh, like this could go bad for me, I can go click here. Everything went well for you. If not create a positive experience, I at least don't make the risk of it becoming a negative experience. And mm. then I can take control of the situation, get out of there, whatever. And then, you know, if my idea is that I take this little puppy to wherever I'm going to go and it would just be like, I just want you to experience this stuff along yep. the way, investigate shit, go check stuff out, watch cars go past, watch people go past. And I might feed the dog along the way, but in it's just going to be like, here, have a treat. Periodic. You know? Yeah. Like mm. here, have a little piece of kibble. And yep. then when the dog's like chilling out, I'll go to a cafe. The dog sits at my feet. I can then be like trickling him food while he's there. Just like, hey, keep going. This is a good, you're doing the right thing. Mm. I don't want to be bringing the dog up in arousal. I think the emphasis needs to be on coping mm -hmm. to teach the dog coping mechanisms yeah. in, in any given environment. Sometimes it's serene and sometimes it's a little spooky, but no big deal. We can get by. We can cope with this. Yeah. So I think one of the things that ends up happening from taking those dogs out and constantly keeping them in that sort of high state of arousal because of, you know, we're trying to create a positive experience. We're trying to give the dog all the food. Mm. Like we said, first of all, they're not even noticing anything else that's going on. 
But one of the things I've certainly observed is people who condition a really high state of arousal every time the dog leaves the house mm. because they're like, okay, now we're going out, they get their, their food, they're like, we're going on the socialization mission, right? And so then the dog sees the treat pouch and the whole lot and the dog just gets to the point where the, the conditioned response that will stick with it for a long time is every time we leave the house, this is a high, this is a high arousal activity that we're going to do. It's not necessarily that the dog is excited to get somewhere like you might imagine. It's just that leaving the house is high arousal because you you imprinted that on the puppy by overdoing it with food and trying to create positive experiences for the puppy every time you go out. Mm. That's what I observe. So I think all of that goes into the category of socialization. And I think that's one of the first mistakes that new pet owners make. Socialization or generalization? Well, this is your this is that's that's your hill to die on. Expand oh, well, on I, that for us. I really had some great conversations around that. I really appreciate the time that people took to message me and like I was talking to people on the way to work and all sorts of things because they were intrigued about that uh-huh. or either agreeing or offering alternate opportunities to discuss other things such as neutralization. Mm -hmm. The reason that I call it or think about it as generalization is yes, things are social experiences between dogs and other organisms. So I believe that if you meet a dog, it's a social experience. I mean, if a dog meets a dog, it's a social experience. If a dog meets a cat and so on and so on and so on, that's a social experience. But you can't socialize a dog to a lawnmower, a whippersnipper, a cell phone tower, a car, that's not social, that's habitual, that's learning habits around how to cope around those items. Mm. The combining element of the two of them is therefore known as generalisation and that's what we're ultimately working towards is to generalise our dog to any situation, whether it be social or habitual in the environment. So the dog is learning to generalise to any environment that you take it in. I can learn it in this environment, that environment, and I now can learn it in all environments. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much replicant. You know, like I've Mm -hmm. seen the social aspect of dealing with an organism. I've seen the habitual componentry of dealing with machinery. And therefore, I can do and replicate this in any area I can take. And that's ultimately what I believe that most of us are referring to as generalization in the true term. Mm. Other people have suggested, well, it's making the dog neutral to the environment. I don't know if I totally agree with that because I believe that if you neutralize a dog to the environment, then it doesn't pay any attention to anything else, which that's not true to nature of what dogs do. Mm. They're not completely neutral. I like the term neutralization or a dog being neutral to the environment. I, I do agree that that's great, when, especially when you need the dog to focus on you. That's when I believe, you know, when we're using real language and thinking about the terms that we're actually using, I think that when a dog needs to be focused and fixed on you, then it needs to be neutral to everything in the environment. That's Mm. if you need it at that time. But the true nature of us and dogs is even in conversations, if we hear something that's intriguing us, we're going to turn and pay attention. That's not being neutral to the environment. That's acknowledging that it's there, not meaning that you are so distracted by it that you leave what you're doing and go over there or Mm. chase it or pursue it but you know it's there, you're acknowledging it. And that might be something that you are stimulated by. So there might be an eliciting stimuli that you normally would react to. You've now seen it and you think to yourself, my training forbids me from doing that. Mm. Okay, so instead of you being neutral to it because you're not neutral to it, you're present to it, you're just feeling the layering of control through generations of good training and then you're feeling, well, I can't respond to it the way that I used to. Mm. I don't get the same 
benefits anymore. In fact, it starts, there's a cost to go after that now. Mm. So I'm present to it. I know it's there, but I've got to stay fixed to you. Therefore, I would say that can't really be a facet of being neutral. It's more about being generalized to an environment and being able to cope much better. Yeah, I think all that's fair. One of the problems that we have in dogs is we don't have any standardized language. I think that's a huge issue. And we tend to use terms a bit lazy sometimes, and I'm guilty of that as well. well all of us pretty much are. We tend to use terms differently in different areas and different mm. camps. So, you know, one of the, I think, interesting things is when people say a dog is civil, what does that mean? You and I would agree. We might describe that totally – we might use slightly different Variations, words. Variations, yeah. But both of us would look at a dog and make the same assessment, that dog is civil. Yep. And by that we mean like that dog will bite you for real. Yep. Right? Like that's what – means but like if for people outside of the bite sport community or the working dog community that's a weird thing to say i know because that means that you're civilized or yeah, that you're that dog is civil yeah. and it means yeah he's gonna bite you don't go near him yeah and then similarly i often refer to my own dog as social we're just talking about dogs out there right and discussing about like living with them being around them and i often say yeah remy's social but he's not social in that he enjoys the company of people when I say he's social, I mean, like, he's not dangerous. You, you, he can be around, right? But that doesn't mean, like, to some people, they then expect, like, how come your dog's not over here getting pat by me? Like, oh, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like being pat by people. He doesn't yeah. want to be anywhere near you. And mm. it's like, I thought you said he was social. Well, in this context, I mean, he's not dangerous to be around. He's, he's totally safe to be around, but don't try and pat him. He, does, he won't enjoy that, right? If we were going to label it, would you say that a better choice of words would be adaptable? Maybe. Hmm. Yeah. But I mean, that's the issue, right? Like we don't, we have these sort of broad words that don't convey our, well with every, yeah, every and, group that you're with. And yeah. when you are in the right, like within the sort of different facets, they make sense. Mm. So like, you know, and, and I think most people sort of stay in their lane, right? Like we cover quite a lot where as trainers and, and people in the industry, we're across larger portions of the industry and we talk to people and we're talking to people from lots of different areas in the industry. Whereas, you know, like, you know, like I say, people involved in biting dogs, we use those terms and we know exactly what they mean, right? Social means he's not dangerous to be around. Civil means he is. Mm. That doesn't correlate. If you say that to people at, at agility competition, you say, oh, my dog's very social. They, for the most part, will think that you're – because all most of the dogs in that arena are safe to be around. Saying a dog is social, they're going to have some level of expectation that the dog enjoys the company of people. And if you say that the dog is civil, then they're going to ask what the fuck you mean. Like that doesn't, that doesn't carry any knowledge to them. And exactly as you said, that sort of indicates that the dog is friendly if the dog is civil. Oh, he's totally civil. <laughs> he's civilized. Mm. It's like, no, it means that in civilian clothes, he will show aggression, right? That's probably where it comes from, right? That's probably the origin of, I, of a dog being I civil. Don't I don't actually really know, to be honest. It's a word that I've never really bothered to look deep into. Mm. It's just a word that I accepted was the industry language. And I thought I didn't know what it meant at the start. I was confused as much as everybody else when people were describing dogs as civil. And I thought, what a stupid word to describe <laughs> something that is dangerous. Yeah. But then you learn to accept that was the word play that everybody used yeah, well my, and you never questioned it. My guess is that it comes from we do civil work yeah. and doing civil work means no bite equipment. And so you're in your civilian clothes, not wearing any sleeves or bite suit or whatever. You do civil work to bring out real aggression to the man and so then a dog that has done civil work becomes civil, 
I, like I've always just assumed that that's, but the, that's progression the thing is that we, 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 that. we assume that. And um, there's probably some old German dude listening to this like, that's not it. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> <laughs> you, <idiots. laughs> you don't know shit. <sighs> but yeah, I have no idea. But I think that's one of the things like when you talk generalization, socialization, all these sorts of things, we don't have standardized language and people use them in different ways. Mm. And I think, that for the most part is no big deal, whatever, so long as the people that you're actually communicating with understands what you mean and you can have a conversation where you both share understanding. Mm. But I think this is the the lack of that across the full spectrum of the industry and especially within the different like camps of the industry where we talk training styles. I think very often we talk at cross purposes when we actually mean the same thing. We're just using words differently. Sometimes, like we talked about last week, I think that there's people who describe their training and they avoid the use of the word punishment. Now, what they do, like, you know, and some of them very effective trainers, Mm. you and I might do the exact same thing in the moment that they will do. But the way that they describe what they do and the way that I describe what I do, even though we might do the identical thing or close enough to it, we might convey that to people really, really differently and then the message gets kind of altered as in the words that we choose. So I think it causes us more issues in our space than we we care to realize. It's one of the things, it's one something I learned from Bart and it's something I do, you know, whenever I teach is in the first sort of, you know, before lunch on the first day, it's always like a series of definitions. And I say, hey, after this, you can abandon my definitions. I don't mind. But for today and tomorrow or however long we're going to be training together, I need you to use these words mm. in this way, or at least know that I am going to use these words in this way. And this is what I mean so that you know, we're, we're on the same path, right? So that you know, when I say this, that's what I'm talking about. And after this, you'd make your own decisions. But for here, so that we can communicate and when I tell you to do something, you know what I'm doing, that's what you need to know. Those words are like I talk about direct reward, indirect reward. I talk about corrections, punishment, that kind of stuff, right? So it's like, is it a correction or is it a punishment? You, you know, a correction has to have some sort of element of negative reinforcement. If you're going to make the dog correct, the dog has to already know it. I talk about a direct reward being a reinforcer that the pursuit of the reinforcer brings on the behavior and an indirect reward being a a reinforcer that the dog has to divorce himself from the idea of it and do a behavior in order to get it. Right. So like Mm. just little things like that. Some people like I've had people say like, oh, that's not how I use those words. I'm like, that's fine. But that's how I am going to use them today. And if you want to understand, if you want to stay up to like with what I'm teaching, I need you to know that that's what I mean when I say those things. It would be great if we all use the same words after this, yep. but just know that's how I'm going to explain these things. And I demand that you accept that. Otherwise we cannot continue. We, we can't converse because we're going to talk across purposes. We may find ourselves arguing about something we agree totally on just because we're using different words. Yeah, entirely agree. And it's conveyed every single NDTF course because the same thing comes up is that that's not the way I do it. It creates some frustration. But as it's carefully explained to everybody, this is a bubble that you're in for this week. Yeah. You know, the week that you're here, we're institutionalized and we're doing a course that has to have a metric of making sure every student is saying the same thing so I can mark you off. When you leave here, whatever language that you do choose to use after this is entirely up to you and the correlating club that you're working with. 
I think some people struggle with that. The whole concept around that is like, oh, this is different than than what I know. But different doesn't mean wrong. Mm. It just means different. Mm. So I entirely agree with what you said before. I can't even begin to mention the amount of times that I've been having conversations with people only to discover that we're arguing with something that we both agree on, but it was just a different language that we were using. Yeah. I may have mentioned this several times. We have lots of different ethnicities of students that come in from all different areas of the world. We've got a lot of students that come over from China and end up doing the course while they're over here and stuff like that. But we've got people from all over the place. The one great thing is I get them to say sit in their mother language. Mm -hmm. And each one of them says it in a completely different way. Um, Right at the moment, I've got Two Chinese in my group, I've got a French and I've got a German and I think I've got a Portuguese Wow! or somebody that speaks Portuguese. So we've got a large group of different ethnicities and different cultures and so forth. So I always say, what's said in your language? And they tell me what it is. And I said, so there you go. We've just heard it four or five different ways and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's the same thing. It's just said differently. Mm. But you would argue it if you were saying, well, I want it in English. And I said, then you could say it's not right. Mm. That was the specifics around it. But each person in that room just said sit. Mm. They said it the way they knew how to say it. We all speak English. We all know that sit means sit in English, but each single person said a different word. And I said, now, have you gotten into an argument with them? And I said, well, I asked you to say sit. And you said, I did. Mm -hmm. And so did he. We all said sit. No one's wrong. Mm. But if you got into an argument around that, you would feel pretty foolish afterwards because you would discover, oh, we're saying exactly the same thing. Mm. It's just that we didn't understand what we were talking about until we made time to sit down with each other and say, that yeah, makes but I think complete sense. even like beyond using different words, I think that people also sort of, you know, culturally you explain things in different ways. Yeah. I think, you you know, one of the best examples of that is that movie Inglorious Bastards where he's pretending to be a German officer, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he's like going, like talking about- uh, Italian know, officer, you mean? No, no, the German. So the British guy is yep. pretending to be a German officer. They're in German uniforms and everything and they're in a bar and he's he's studied- Ah, uh, yes. He yes. studied German. He has the accent right. He knows all the things and they're like undercover- and then they order three drinks and the way that he puts his three fingers up to say, like he, he you know, holds three, you, we're an audio show, people can't see what I'm doing. Yeah. But he holds his three fingers up and they immediately all look at him and they know that he's he's undercover, that he's a spy. Yeah. Because Germans would hold up th- these three fingers. Their, th- their thumb and the yeah. two, the middle and yeah. pointer finger. Yep. Yeah. And so yep. it's just like little cultural mm. differences like yep. that it can be a big thing. And I yes. think that's a really good example of that. Mm. And so- you know, we face that, like I say, in different communities, we do the same thing differently. The way that you indicate you want three glasses can can really indicate where you're from. Totally offset. Now that you've brought up that movie, that is absolutely hilarious when Brad Pitt is using this thick American accent trying to play an Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah, yeah. it's a great movie. It's Quentin Tarantino. Yep. All right, we got to keep moving. Yes. Second problem that new pet owners make, second biggest mistake. Right. After poorly socializing their dog, and I think this one usually comes into the category of people who didn't socialize their dogs at all, Mm. while they're doing that, it's been my experience that they then also give that dog way too much freedom in the house. Mm. And I think that often is then sort of a little bit of a case of the guilts because they know – fuck, this poor dog hasn't left the house in three months, right, or two months or however long they've had him in there. 
And so they, they start offering too much space to the dog. And I think that comes at the cost of structure. Yep. And I think that comes at the cost of discipline. Now, I think discipline, you know, that can be a bit of a dirty word to many people. And I think that the lack of discipline can come from lack of effective guidance from a trainer, Mm. right? From a a competent trainer. I think that a lot of people who are in the like, you know, never say no to the dog kind of camp, that's what I'm talking about, right? Not talking about people who effectively know how to manage a dog, regardless of your training style, but the people who are just like, just throw food on the floor and it'll be fine, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think I have seen many instances where it can go really, really wrong for a new dog going into people's homes because of just way too much freedom to that Mm. dog in the home. Like access to anywhere it wants to go, sleeps wherever it wants. You know, your chances of toilet training a dog like that are so slim. There's plenty of people I'm sure listening or you've had clients that the dog had total freedom in the house and yet somehow was toilet trained. And I think you can thank your breeder for that. You know, like a very good breeder can toilet train a dog for the most part, like, Mm. or at least get it started depending on how they keep the whelping box and they can teach the dog, you know, you come straight out of the box onto the grass and you go on whatever. And so by fluke, some puppies turn up and they, that carries over and they, the the situation is similar enough to them that they can maintain their toilet training between training places and they never go inside. But I think that's one of the biggest issues that people face is they don't want to create the dog. They don't want to keep the dog in a confined space. They don't want to manage the dog so tightly that you, the first most obvious problem is toilet training because the dog then is just too much freedom. It's got too much access and opportunity to go in the wrong place and have no, you know, just does it. There's no repercussions. Yep. I think the other thing then is, so toilet training is the first issue. I think the more like bigger problem that I see from all of that, that usually then progresses and becomes like some sort of form of separation anxiety. Mm. Because in my experience, most of the separation anxieties are not necessarily separation anxieties. They're usually like what we say is separation anxiety or a client would tell us is separation anxiety. Usually is just a hierarchical problem in the home, in my experience. I think very often when dogs are losing their minds, when people leave, it's more often like a lack of structure. And it's very often that the dog is feeling like it's very in control because it's manipulating the entire environment. It gets everything at once. It's demand barking. It's doing those sorts of things. And it's controlling you in the house. We've all seen you know, instances of where people don't ask their dog to get off the furniture because the dog's on the furniture. So you sit on the floor, right? Like the dog has exerted that level of control and does really control the people. Their, their whole life revolves around the dog, but inevitably they have to leave to do things, right? Like they have to go to work or they have to go to the shop. Yeah, they have to leave the house at some point. So the dog has like got them so tight around its finger in the home and they do whatever the dog sort of imposes its will upon them. But then when they leave, the dog can't stop that. And Mm. so that is what the big cause of stress for those dogs is that they're like, what's happening here? Like, I'm not able to control you in this this instance. I imagine that to be a very terrifying experience for the dog in that moment because it is in control of so many other things, but it can't control that one aspect. And I think that often represents as separation anxiety. Like people will say, oh, the dog loses its mind when I'm leaving the house and becomes destructive and whatever. I feel like real separation anxiety where the dog actually has serious anxiety about being apart from the people, I think that's very rare, actually. I think that like where that is a real issue, and I think that's diagnosed by you know, the dog not taking food while they're gone. And there's lots of ways to do it, but 
I feel like that is quite a rare thing to experience where the dog truly has a, an anxiety around leaving rather than has a tantrum and, and becomes destructive in your absence. That's largely a genetic thing as well. Yeah. And it's okay. mainly seen in Staffordshire Bull Terriers. I think at the time when I was speaking with Dr. Robert Holmes, he said that's the number one listed dog in the world. I believe so. Don't quote me on this because it was a conversation we had some time ago. But from my experiences, the one true dog that I have seen and have spoken to many colleagues on multiples of platforms in Australia, internationally, all say the same thing is that the number one client with separation anxiety is Staffies. Yeah, right. And it's true separation anxiety where they're literally turning the house upside down, trying to dig through the wall, literally pulling their claws off paws, trying to dig out of the house, mm. breaking windows, breaking furniture, yeah. hyperventilating, urinating and defecating inside the house. Mm-hmm. And the dog is almost at a, a state where it needs to be seen by a veterinarian because mm-hmm. of how it's presented itself on return. Mm-hmm. Those sort of things, I agree with you. I don't think it's very common in a lot of dogs you see. You might hear the dog getting a little upset for a period of time and then it goes off and entertains itself. Yeah. On that too. An observation that I have, and it's a glimpse or a snapshot, we all have glimpses and snapshots into what we want to show each other in social media these days. We want people to see this perfect image, like an image of perfection. Yeah. You know, this is- this. You want is, people to see you dancing to a reel, pointing yeah. at the words that are telling people. Well, stuff. the trend these days is people want to see a dog bowl that looks like something that a Michelin star chef mm. has presented with mm. like sardines all lined yeah, up yeah. in a row yeah, yeah, and- yeah. You've got your greenery section yeah. and you've got all this sort of stuff. And it's nice. I, you know, I like Narelle's. Makes for a good Instagram yeah, it reel. It does. It makes for a good Instagram reel because people often tag Narelle in it and say, you know, I, I put your canine suticals in there. And mm-hmm. that's nice. But what does intrigue me, and I want to know if it's just story time or if it's this is they're convinced that this is the reality that they have to live in, something along the lines of what you said before, is that the dog is presented with this environment that is boundless. It doesn't have any boundaries whatsoever. And it's almost like a competition of have a look at me and our family lifestyle and how much freedom and liberties we give our dogs. Aren't we great pet parents? Mm. Then I think to myself, are you doing this to take the piss or are you convinced that this is the right thing to do? The problem is the majority of people are convinced it's the right thing to do and they're even being harassed into believing it's the right thing to do by other online mentors in those sort of areas. Sometimes I think, am I just not getting this? Am I am I a dinosaur in this training industry that I don't get it? As the world changes, is there something that I'm missing? But they're majority of our clients. Mm. They're the people who come to you and say, my dog is literally upending my lifestyle. Mm. And I think, no shit, Jack, you've posted this dog's lifestyle online for the last six months about the limitless and boundless opportunities that the dog has and the freedoms that are awarded to this dog for nothing. Mm. It has every opportunity granted to it and you are, you have become its servant. I can't understand that. It goes against the grain of everything I knew and everything that I believe I know about training and behavior. I mean, it doesn't even exist for us in our society it just doesn't exist. I mean, what sort of world does, do we exist yeah. in where we really believe that that's the best thing to do by our dogs? Yeah. I actually think that that's a form of uncontrollable insanity. Well, I think that that leads to what gets diagnosed as separation anxiety. And certainly 
you could cause real anxiety doing it. But for the most part, we label the dogs that grow up in that environment as being anxious dogs, but it's just that they have no boundaries. They're just running around like, you know, bouncing off the walls because they don't know what to do. And so they're just literally just letting energy fall out of themselves. And they, of course, they're destructive because that's fun to be destructive. You know what I mean? Like a dog that tears your shoes and stuff apart, that's just a dog having a rad time. Rarely is that the dog tears your shoes apart because it has separation anxiety. It tears the fucking door apart when it has proper separation anxiety, right? Because it's trying to get out. It doesn't go into the house and destroy the stuff in the house. It destroys the stuff in the house because that's fun to do, right? Yeah. I think one of the things that maybe you see with dogs that have proper separation anxiety is they might destroy your things that smell like you and not because they're trying to destroy them, but like they might suckle them and chew them and stuff like that. Yeah. Shoes in particular. Right. Yeah, that's true because people have come home and said, you know, the fucking thing destroyed my shoes. Yeah. But you might be right. It could be a fact of trying to self-soothe. Yeah, I think um, I think that's probably the case yeah. in some instances. But I think second thing that people get wrong is just too much freedom within their home yep. and no boundaries to the dog. And I think then it's when they have like stark contrast between like no boundaries in the home And then we put the leash on you and we expect you to now like not drag us down the street. You know what I mean? And I think the worst part of all of this is like people just don't know, right? So like this is the whole topic, the whole reason we started on this is the mistakes that new pet owners make, right? Mm. The three biggest mistakes. And I think it's not necessarily obvious to people in these modern sort of the modern society that we live in. It's not necessarily obvious to people that you do have to control a dog within the home. And similarly, I think that, you imagine you've never been a dog owner before in your life and you've got friends that are worst case. Imagine your friend is especially excellent with dogs and knows really well. And then you're over at their house and you just see the total freedoms that their their dog has because Mm. it's a middle-aged dog that has done all the training. So like, you know, again, I'll use myself as an example because my dog is free in the house. My dog does whatever he wants because, but it took three years to teach that. Mm. And he's a working dog before he was anything else. And I had to get all that in place. And then I start teaching that. But if you look like people that come to my house and see, oh, like you've got, you've got one of those Malinois. He's like, yeah. And he's, just, and he's asleep <laughs> on the couch and he'll remain there. Right. Yeah. And so like that, and they see him get up and he, he walks around, he stretches around, he doesn't fuck with people. Again, because of all those things, like I say, he's not social. He doesn't want the company of people. When people come over, he goes and does his own thing. He sits on his couch and just chills out. He's not destructive in the house because it took me three years to make him not destructive in the house. I remember one time when Remy was young saying to Jane, you know, he's not very destructive. Like he hasn't destroyed many things. And she looked at me like incredulously. <laughs> It's like, that's because all the dogs before him destroyed everything we have. Like, <laughs> like, cause he, when he was in the yard, like outside, she, I was like, he hasn't really destroyed anything. So he literally just dog proofed your house up until yeah. the point he came. She's like, all the dogs before him have destroyed everything. Mm. Like we've been through so many dogs prior to him that like, there's nothing left to destroy. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you a question. You're allowed to do anything you want when you go to your home? Anything I want. Anything you want? In my own home? In your own home. Not anything I want. I no. could, that's right. I would challenge you right now to go home when you get home and yell and scream at the top of your voice Yeah, and not have consequences for that. Because I have people say, well, I'm allowed to do anything I want at my home. And I said, who do you live with? And they said, wife or husband or kids or anything like that. And I said, you're not allowed to. You think you can, but you've still got social restraints. You've still got somebody you're going to answer to 
over your inappropriate behavior. Yeah. Why would you then allow your dog to do the same sort of thing is go home and, and say, well, there is no rules for the dog. I agree with you. It, it is a frustration I see. And furthermore, it confuses me when I, I see people who call themselves pet industry professionals who are advising people that unless you do that, you're a shitty owner. Yeah. That confuses me because I mean, if I behave like that here and yelled and screamed at the top of my voice and was inconsiderate of Norell or, or just, you know, not taking her feelings into it or behave like that in my workplace, I would be a shitty employee, employer, husband, whatever. People would say to me, dude, what's going through your head right now? Why then allow dogs to do it? Mm. I mean, you have to analyze what's going through your head if you think that that's appropriate, because I agree with you, it's not appropriate. Mm. I wonder why people or wonder how that came to pass that people feel it's it's okay to do. The thing that's more confusing to me, I guess the reason why I struggle with this so much when I'm having an outward session about it, is I really believed that we would see an improvement in a lot of things that I saw was uncharacteristic in dog owners. And in some areas, it's improved dramatically. I think the way that we treat animals, the respect we have for them, the welfare that we have, but I think it tipped over the edge in certain aspects, not all, but in certain aspects. I think it boiled over well and truly because it confuses me that there is so much information that people don't have to be hard-lined into one way of thinking. They can get an opinion or they can be strong-armed by groups of people, but then they can still go on any other platform and look at it and research the truth, but they choose not to. Mm. They absolutely choose not to because they they have made a choice to do this. What makes you think that things are worse, though, in that regard than they were in the past? The amount of dogs that are still getting destroyed. Is that increasing? It's increasing, yeah. There's more more than population is increasing? According to the industry statistics, the people that have come back and reported it, there's been, I mean, dog attacks are are on the rise. Mm. Yes, there's more population of dogs in the world than when I first started in my career. That's true. That's absolutely true. Mm. There's been far more wastage far more dogs surrendered, even at the end of COVID when everybody got sick of the dog that they got to entertain them while yeah. they were in lockdown. Of their, you know, a lot of them are back in welfare again. Mm. So that answers a lot of questions for me. When you look at the back end, the hidden back end that not many people want to talk about, why is that actually happening? Mm. And it's always been a an unpopular opinion of mine and several other colleagues in the industry that when you start stopping certain training practices and when you start removing tools, you start limiting the capability to control some of these more powerful breeds. Mm. And again, I know we're getting back into old territory, old discussions where that conversation has come up in certain European nations where people are saying, well, if that's the case, we shouldn't have those strong, powerful breeds. Mm. Is that really a conversation we want to have? Is this really what we want to take in in a world forum? Is that's the answer? Is, well, not at all, no. That's right. I think that's an ill way of thinking, not not a, a pragmatic and, and structured way of thinking. But but I think what I'm sort of asking is, you know, we're talking about three biggest mistakes that new pet dog owners make, right? Right. But do you think that the standard of pet dog ownership is increasing, decreasing, or staying the same? The standard of it? Yeah. Like how like how well people are living with their pets. Do you think that that has deteriorated, gotten better, or stayed the same over the last 30 years? Because I think that kind of thing's hard to gauge. And I think us as dog trainers have such a fucking warped view of the way people live with their pets because we see the problems. 
right? So like if somebody's got a great little doggy and nothing goes wrong with it, we never hear of them, mm. right? Why would we? I did that thing. I made it for Patreon, God, nearly two years ago, a long time ago, about like the stress of raising working puppies. And I did a bunch of interviews with different people. And I, I put into the like local dog owner group, the inner West dog owners group. I said, Hey, who got a COVID puppy, right? Like I want to talk to you. And I just random person, like, is anybody prepared to do an interview with me? Yep. So I go to this lady's house. She's in the video. She's yeah, got I, a, I watched it. Yeah. she's got a little cavalier, doesn't know shit, has a wonderful life with this dog. Yep. Like has done everything right. As like, you know, went to puppy school there were things that I would change. There were things that you and I would do differently, but she has no cause to ever deal with the dog trainer. Yep. Like she's doing a great she's job happy. totally by herself. Yep. The dog was a sweet little dog. In fact, I nearly, I wanted to steal him. He was wonderful. Yep. And so I think for us as dog trainers, I think that we have a warped view of how people, how the average dog owner lives with their dog because we only have cause to deal with the people who are doing it poorly. That is a good observation and a just one at that. The only thing that I will add to that is I get to see more than average mm-hmm. normal pet owners mm-hmm. because some of them, a percentage of people are here all the time. But we've got a lot of boarding kennels and I speak to a lot of the staff about trends and the behaviours of people that are coming with their pets. Some people are completely clueless. They turn up to an area where it says, please don't take your dog off lead. And they get out of the car and their dog's off lead running around the the Mm -hmm. centre creating mayhem. Where other people are perfect. You'd speak to them. They haven't had any training with the dog. They get out. The dog walks in. It's nicely socialised. It walks in the office. It's friendly to the staff. It accepts the staff putting a collar on it, taking it off the owner, walking it down to a kennel it's never been before, placing it in and being able to care for it for an elected period of time. Mm -hmm. So the trends that happen in pet dog ownership, we're pretty much on them. We see a a lot of that. And if people aren't having problems at home, if their relationship with their dog is one that we don't have an issue and the neighbours don't have an issue and the community doesn't have an issue, there is no issue. Mm. For me as a dog trainer, I don't need to be involved in that. Again, yeah, I agree with what you said before. The only time that we need to get involved in it is when people come and say, hey, my life is full of fuckery because of this dog. Mm then we need to step in and we need to do something about it. There's definitely an increase of that because trainers are busy. All Mm. trainers that I know have got plenty of work. Mm. There's work coming out of the Yazoo Forum. Mm. So that means that the trend is high. Mm. Uh, That means that there's a lot of dogs with a lot of problems out there. Mm. Oh, for sure there is. No shortage of work and a glut of trainers out there means that there's problems. But I just wonder whether that graph is going up or down or staying the same. Mate, it has to. If you consider the amount of students that we pump out through NDTF, like they're in almost every state of Australia Mm. and we're pumping out a lot of students each year and that's just one organisation that's doing it and then there's other people learning different ways that have nothing to do with the NDTF and have gone through other organisations that are out there. I, I don't even know who these people are. I just see their names pop up in social media that they're advertising dog training. I have no idea where they got their qualifications from. They've just Mm. appeared on the marketplace. But then there's those people that start populating all these different areas as well. Mm. And they're busy and they've got plenty of work on. They've got no shortage of work either. So if all these randos are popping up in all these different areas and they're all busy and they're all their calendars are full of work, Holy shit, that means that there is a rise of populated work in their area. Yeah. You know, I, and even some of these people are remote, like they're in country areas and they're busy. Yeah. You know, I speak to them. Yeah, that's or, interesting, or, hey, hmm. that 
more rural areas still have the same issues because yep. you kind of think of the problems of dog ownership being a more like in the cities. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always surprised when people are in more rural areas and they're very busy as dog trainers. I'm like, huh, that doesn't fit the stereotypes that we sort of say, you yep. know, like the idea is, you know, like the bigger the city, the more disconnected people are from animals and, and their ability to raise them. So like there's no, no surprises that there's heaps of work in the cities, but that there is heaps of work in more rural areas kind of shocks me. I guess what I used to see as a child growing up in, you know, in different areas of Australia, like I used to go out to rural Victoria because my family used to have farming land out that way. Mm -hmm. And in episodes before I've talked about my uncle Ray, who used to take me around and he used to have a couple of dogs and a couple of head of sheep around his farm, a couple of hundred head of sheep, I should say, on his farm. And he had the dogs out there and they were very ruralized type of dogs, very well trained, very respectful dogs, did a great job. But that was the type of dog that lived in that environment. Now, some of those country towns are either ghost towns or they're more populated. Um, they've grown. It's become a little metropolis mm. where people have started to gather into those areas. Dogs are coming in like they are with other major cities and they're house dogs instead of working dogs. Mm. And some of these people, don't know what to do about a house dog. You know, like if you put a dog out in a paddock and round up sheep with them, that's their wheelhouse. They know mm. everything about that. But they don't know about how to raise a little white fluffy that their wife wants as a little lap dog in the house. Mm. And I've seen those scenarios and had those conversations with people before. Like they've said, you know, if this is one of my working dogs, I, I, I kind of feel like I'd know what I should do with it. But I, I don't know what to do with this dog. Mm. You know, it's different. And I even feel differently about it. Like I have different emotions about mm. this dog. The one that I remarked on a show a while ago was Ed Frawley when he talked about his relationship with his working dogs and his police dogs versus their little family dog mm. that when it died, how much that personally affected him. And that's one of millions of people yeah. who are differently affected differently by different circumstances with different types of dogs. I reckon that might be something you've just hit on there is I think what has changed in dog ownership is that people have the dogs in the house way more than they used to. Yep. Like I think that has been a big change over, you know, my lifetime. Yep. I think I've observed that. Even myself, you know, my dogs were outside dogs. They yep. were outside all the time. You went out and spent time with them, but they were outside. You they were had inside. their place. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now – my dogs are in the house. Yep. And that's a goal of mine with my dogs is because I want to enjoy their the company with them. I want to to have them in the house with me. Um, so I think that probably is one of the biggest shifts, I think, that has led to the bigger problems. And maybe it's not that people really treat dogs any differently or like train them any differently. It's just that we have them in the house more and want to take them more places. So like we're giving them more access and so that leads to more problems. Yep. That probably would make sense, right? Yeah, I think it does. It's always going to be a little bit of a an odd anomaly. And that's why sometimes you have to question yourself is, am I updating with how it really is? And I believe that majority of the time, myself, yourself, and many of the other people in the industry who stay current and maintain our training and see what other people in the world is and add and collect useful material that's beneficial for ourselves and our public to benefit their dogs and benefit the society that they're living in and how it's modifying and changing readily. It's still curious sometimes when you look at it and you just think, how did we get here? Mm. How did we get to the point where the dog is on the furniture and the humans are on the floor? That always makes me scratch my head and think, you're telling me you've got a problem 
but you're letting the dog live this type of little Lord Fauntleroy lifestyle mm. and you don't see it as being a problem. The problem now is we're more focused about how people perceive us on social media that that's more important than the actual reality of how we need to live our best life as well. Mm. You know, I see people talking about that quote, my dog living its best life. Well, they're living a shitty compromised life and they're frustrated and distraught about where they've been pigeonholed into making sure that they're living that perfect picturesque lifestyle for the dog. Mm. My suggestion is do something about it. Mm. You know, like if that has become so frustrating for you, then do something about it. Don't let it be that way. Recognize that it's time for change. Recognize that maybe some of the advice that you've got from people to encourage you to do that was probably benefiting them, but not you. Mm. Recognize that maybe they know something that you don't. Recognize that they may have been professionally trained and it would be very easy for you to portray Remy in a falsified way if you were malicious and you wanted to do something like Mm. that. You don't. I don't. Randy is an outside dog because he doesn't do well with being inside. He can't settle down. He settles better when he's outside. I let the dogs be where they want to be. Mm. All the other dogs are inside. If it's very cold outside, I bring him in, but then I have to crate him because he can't settle well inside. And people say, well, you're a trainer. It would be too compulsive of me to have to control him in the manner that he would need to be controlled in. And I don't want to do that to him when I can easily have him outside and he's at, he's in peace and harmony. Mm. I provide for him. I have him in a sheltered area. I, you know, like he's, he gets everything that he needs to function well. He gets care, affection, water, food, anything that he needs. And he's in the best environment he needs to be. I just don't want to have him inside and have him and I and, or him and Narelle in a constant state of conflict with mm. each other. Some dogs just aren't good inside dogs. Mm. Mando's a great inside dog. He is absolutely fantastic inside. And most of my Roddies have been good inside dogs. Shepherds sometimes can be a little bit rambunctious inside. Not generally. I'm not generalizing and saying that's a a general rule because I know other people with German Shepherds and they're absolutely fantastic inside. Randy just isn't one of those dogs. Mm. He just can't seem to get his head around the fact that he needs to settle or he needs to stay in one place. If he's outside, he's got his sheltered area and he's got access to the backyard and he frequently moves between two of them Mm. because he's got ants in his pants. He can't sit still. And I don't like trying to cap all that behavior in him when I don't necessarily have to. Mm. I just put him in a suitable location. If you're listening to what I'm saying, if you're actually getting a bead on what I'm suggesting here, is sometimes in order for your dog to live its best life, that doesn't mean you being a dickhead and doing stupid and unproductive things that have been the benefit of other people's lives, but I'm telling you will be the bane of yours. Mm. Do what's best for your dog by making good choices and having good observations. And if you're not sure, call in a professional. Mm. There is always time for that to call in someone where you can have a good conversation with somebody that you know, somebody who's industry trusted. You can see their relationship between them and their own dogs. Most people will show you. They're happy to show you what they do with their own dogs and have a conversation with them. Have them come around and sit down with you, they will only give you suggestions. They won't tell you absolutes like you absolutely have to do this. They'll just say to you, all right, this is what I would probably suggest that you do. Here are a couple of good options. Go for it. Mm. See, this can't be done in a reel. We just spoke for half an hour about my second point here, giving the dog too much freedom. We're not even on to the third one. (laughs) They wanted us just to write this. They were demanding we just write this in text and point at it while we dance. Yeah, but that's... (laughs) 
That'd be nuts. anyone? It's just nuts. All right. So I'm going to move on to my last thing. My last. See, that's why I think there's a problem with it is people are living this flesh in a pan lifestyle yep. where they think some dancing galoot. Hang on, sir. Weren't you bragging about getting our Instagram to 10,000 followers last week? When have you seen me dancing on Instagram pointing to... We did dance once for an ad. Do you remember that? We did that where we pretended that uh, someone caught us waltzing together. Did we? Yeah, we did it for the ad for the seminar we did down at Alex's place or with Alex down in Melbourne. We would waltzing and we got Darrell to walk in, film me, and then we're like, oh, you caught us. <laughs> <laughs> we danced on the internet before it was cool uh, to dance yeah. on the internet. Okay, well, we're the original. We're OGs, then. mate. Yeah. All right. Number one, they poorly socialize their dog. Yep. Number two, they then give that dog too much freedom mm-hmm. in that small space that they've created for the dog. They, the dog's just running rogue in the house. Yep. I feel like the third mistake that new dog owners make is that they then, having done those two things, realize they've got an issue and they want to focus on suppressing that arousal rather than pointing it in a particular direction. Is this finally the discussion on suppression? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. So I think that the poorly socializing your dog and giving it too much freedom in the house is the perfect storm for creating a ton of arousal. Mm -hmm. You're a dog that doesn't know how to settle, goes crazy whenever you take it anywhere. Like poorly socializing a dog is assuming that the dog doesn't have rock star genetics and you can't derail it from what it was going to be. Yep. But I think poorly socializing your dog is one of the ways to create unmanageable arousal outside of the house. You see that with dogs that, you know, freaking out or doing, you know, because they've never been out there so that their arousal is like they're totally anxious sort of all the time. Yep. Or because they did the things that we're talking about where they were just paying the dog nonstop, now the dog leaves the house in drive basically and has this big expectation of getting to do something extravagant every time it leaves the house. Yep. So I think they create that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we're going to talk training, there's not too many people who are really willing to create outlets for their dogs. For the most part, once people cross the line, the mistake that the average pet owner makes is that once they cross the line into like, okay, I'm fixing this. Dog's driving me crazy. I'm fucking done with all this bullshit. Mm. They mostly then just suppress the dog kind of completely. And don't read into that heavy handedly. Like you can suppress the shit out of a dog with positive reinforcement, right? Like you can just flatten a dog out. And that's what people want is whether, no matter what their technique for doing it is that they want to just like create a dog that sits there and does nothing. And usually it's after, for most pet people, that's, you know, two years in or something like that, right? Where the dog hasn't grown out of the things that they just expected it would be. Mm. They make the excuse, you know, oh, he's just a rambunctious puppy. And then, no, he's three years old. <laughs> like he's no longer a puppy. He's an asshole, right? And they, they make that decision in their mind and they're like, okay, I'm stopping this. Whether they do it themselves, whether they contact a trainer, whether they, you know, just sort of do the research, whatever, I think that the biggest, the third in the line of big mistakes that new pet owners do is suppress the dog's drive. Cold turkey. Yeah, Mm -hmm. rather than giving the dog outlets to express it. And I think that a lot of people also then, you know, they don't like to drive cap, right? So like I think where a lot of people go wrong is even if they've got the idea of like, okay, I can have my dog low arousal in this environment and, you know, I can take him and he can go high arousal in that environment. And for the average pet dog owner, that looks like the dog can be cool in the house, but they go down the park with the chucket and they can throw the chucket and the dog gets to blast off. And so they have the capacity to have low and high, 
but very few can modulate that and do what we would call in, you know, bite sports like drive capping, right? Mm. So like while you are hyper aroused, I need you to do something for me and like be still and then bring back that arousal and turn it on and off. It's kind of pre-macking the dog. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's one of the things that sort of then gets overlooked when yep. they've, they've created the, through poor socialization or incorrect socialization, no matter which way they go, then too much freedom, not enough boundaries, no discipline, then that leads to a dog that they eventually get sick of and then it's like, okay, now I'm just going to crush this dog, mm. right, because I don't want these bullshit behaviours. You're an adult. I'm sick of it. I'm putting an end to this rather than along the way showing the dog like, hey, man, yeah, fuck yeah, go crazy. Like this is an opportunity to show us all of the arousal that you want but then also being able to show the dog like, hey, I know this looks like the picture of where you're normally aroused, but you're not allowed to today. There's mm. not going to be a positive outcome from that. And, you know, setting up and, and showing the dog like, you know, windows of opportunity, like demonstrating to the dog this is a time when it is correct to show me high arousal. This is a time when it's not. And I think, you know, as I just sort of explained, but I'll do it again, try and, be- try and do it better is showing the dog the picture of, I know this looks like the same as when you should be highly aroused, but it's not because I said it's not Mm. and being able to drive cap in that way. That just, I think is the third in the line of mistakes that new pet owners make. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm. And I don't really think I need to elaborate too much on it because I think you explained it well. Mm. Well, I think we've done it. Yeah. We've been through the list. I'm interested in if anybody else has a different set of three. Mm. I think that would make for an interesting conversation. But I think the reason I want to talk about this and why we have for the last hour is for sure we can reduce these things down to sound bites. We can say, oh, the three biggest mistakes that new pet owners make is they poorly or incorrectly socialize their dogs, they give the dogs too much freedom, and then they just try and crush the dog later on. But where's the extensive explanation around that? Yeah. Because that leaves people going, oh, cool. What does that mean? Good for you. Here's a like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'll take that delicious like. Summarizing everything that you were talking about before, I think – the reality of our nature in a lot of these expectations is based on our experiences. I think that's part of the big problem. And some of the experiences that people have in those realities are very slim. Mm-hmm. They have a very small bubble or a very small window into, or a lens is a popular word that we're using these days, mm-hmm. into the realities of what it is, what the reality actually is. And we have a belief on reality. And that's what I see more and more with a lot of pet owners is that they have a reality until they look outside that room. Let's look at life like you were raised in the room that we're in now, one single room, and that's your reality. You know, Mm -hmm. that is your reality because that's what's known to you. And then when you take a look outside into your neighborhood, let's say just the street, that's an unknown variant that you're looking into. And you could be skeptical about that and say, that's not real. That's bullshit. But it is real. It's a new part of your reality. Like you're starting to broaden your horizons. You're starting to learn more. You're starting to expand. You're starting to become more familiar with things that go on up and down in that street. And then you think, well, that's my reality. That's what I know until you move out into the town and start seeing more and more and more. You know, it's kind of like having discussions with people who are flat earthers. You know, (laughs) it's really having those sort of discussions because that's their reality. They really believe in that sort of manifestation. I, I secretly love flat earthers. Do you? I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. 
I just think that, you know, it's such a bizarre thing to hang your hat on. It's always an identity, right? Like you're not a person who, you know, has other hobbies and interests if you're a flat earther. Like flat earthers are flat earthers. That's my thing. That's what I believe in, right? I'm entertained <laughs> by them. I love them. I appreciate every one of them. I got stuck on a flight with a guy when I was heading over to Europe for my mate Dave's Bucks party over in Poland. Mm. He was just flat out trying to talk to me about the flat earth conspiracy and I said, dude, you're a nice guy and I've said I've enjoyed some of this conversation. It's been entertaining and I said, but there's no way I'm going to do another 11 and a half hours of this. There is absolutely no way that's going to happen. And I said... So and I said what I and I said here's what's going to happen. I said I'm going to put my noise cancelling headphones on, and I'm going to watch a couple of movies, and then I'm going to go to sleep. So he just goes cool beans, and he started talking to the other guy on the other side of me yeah, who literally I mean. did the the same sort of thing. He was really into it and this really I mean. energetic and really enthusiastic. Yeah, and he was willing to walk around the plane and talk to people about the whole thing about you know like this is bullshit and we've been raised to believe this. Yeah, it was amazing. The the ice wall. That but that, that's what I said. The nature of our reality is based on our experiences. Yeah, yeah. And some of these people are just experienced with other people who are flat earthers, and they tell them that's the reality, dude. You're being lied to. You know, we're being ruled by reptiles, and we're living in a world that's not really round. It's flat. What do flat earthers think is under the earth? Like, what's underneath? I'm not interested enough. <laughs> you, you had an opportunity. I did. <laughs> you could have had 11 hours of that. I just didn't feel like he was the sort of authority that I really wanted to get schooled in Flat Earth by. Yeah. If that was the case, if somebody wanted to school me in that, I would rather it be somebody who's actually reasonably creditable and has- Are there any- Well, I don't know. See, I don't know. Jeez, it'd be embarrassing if it turned out that was real. You know, <laughs> but the, but there are physicists out there who believe that we're living in a hologram. Oh, like a simulation. Yeah. We're <laughs> so far off dog. But statistically, <laughs> that's more likely than not. That we're Sims. Yeah. Yeah. It's more likely that that's the case. Could be. Yeah. Still fucking hurts when I fall over though. Well, I mean, it's the great matrix. Progr- pro- yeah, great it's, programming. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right. Sorry, folks. We've divulged into madness. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my three things. I think that if you agree with those, wonderful. Mm-hmm. If you don't, tell me what yours are. Yep. Give us some comments in the, the Facebook. Yep. But I think that's it. And I think the reason why I think that's worth knowing is you're sort of forewarned is forearmed. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of stuff that for people who do make content and that goes to the public and the that random person, that's the sort of stuff that I think people need to know. I think that as dog trainers, those kind of foundation things are what's important for keeping dogs out of shelter mm. and avoiding that third point where the dog just gets crushed. Yep. I think that's that for me is why – I get so passionate when I talk to new people who get dogs, you know, like when, especially I don't deal in many just random pet dog owners. I don't run puppy schools or anything like that. But when someone I know is getting a dog, I get really like, oh, these are the things you've got to do. And often people are like, oh, fuck off. You know what I mean? I'm going to, I'm going to do what, whatever I feel like, or I'm going to do what feels just right at the time. And mm. and for me, the reason I, I'm often sort of a bit perturbed by that because it's like, oh, man, but I know where that ends. And that ends in the dog having to be suppressed in one way or another, you know, whereas, or worse. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's why I get to like, oh, no, no, let's do the socialization well so that we can tick that box and let's create rules and boundaries so that we can, you know, have a dog that you really truly enjoy the company of. And yes, for a little while when that's a puppy, it's going to cry about being in the crate and it's going to protest and there's going to be all kinds of things and it's going to pull you on the leash and you're going to have to create a boundary via the leash and not allow that. And there's going to be some discomfort along the way for you and the dog for a very short period of time, mm. but it's going to lead to a lifelong exp- uh, love and, you know, you're going to enjoy the dog. The dog's going to enjoy its life and you're never going to hit that wall where you're like, okay, no, nah, I'm cutting all the drive, right? Mate, I totally agree. I'm, in, I'm totally supportive of that. And I'm an advocate of what you just said. You know, this should be a love story, not a horror story. Mm. And that's why I want this to be, for many people, you know, last week's episode when we started talking about punishment, I really want this to be a horse in the paddock scenario. You hit the fence a couple of times, that's it. Mm. You know, you learn where the boundaries of the property are, you learn how to manage and cope with it, and you learn how to be in control of whether that ever happens again. Mm. The fence doesn't chase you around. The fence doesn't try and hit you in the ass. It's not coming after you. It's your behavior that affects it. You lean up against the fence, the fence will spank you. That's a fact of life. If dogs learn that correlating aspect in their home, if they learn that this is what's expected to me, it can be over and done with quickly and we can get on with life. So be it, more power to you. The fact that that's not happening and we're still having conversations around that and there still is so much wastage in dogs being killed, I tell you that fucking hits me in the feels. Yeah. Like there is no end of suffering in my heart knowing that that could have been easily avoided if that dog just learned that paddock rule. Don't fuck with the fence. It's going to spank you. I know we're at the end of the podcast. I don't want to lead this into too much of another longer conversation. It could be a conversation for another time. I don't want to ever disrespect anybody or any technique by assuming it's that easy and it's, you know, it's just a couple of spanks by a fence. That's not always the way it is. I know dogs can go through a level of fuckery. I know they can try people out. I know they do all these weird and wonderful things. And I know that there's always these measures of conflicting advice that are going to be relentless, no matter what we do, that's going to happen. We will win one fight, we'll lose another one. And that's just going to be on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. My key philosophy to everybody, uh, the one thing that I always keep coming back to, the number one thing that I keep saying to people all the time is use what works. If it isn't working, you're not doing the right technique if it's not working. And that is a simple fact. You can argue with me or any other trainer on the face of the earth, but I I can tell you a fact right now. If what you're doing is not working, it is ineffective Mm. and you need to change strategies. There is no person on the planet, if they disagree with that, you have to question their ethics and even their understanding of the realities of behavioral modification. Because it just seems crazy to me, really that is what we define as the definition of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Pull your head in. Why make the dog go through all that unnecessary suffering? It intrigues me, and it, again, it's it's a hill that I do die on in front of a lot of students in, in training, is I tell them that the timeline, if the dog is obtained as a puppy, that a lot of the timeline of a dog actually getting to a point where it does have training, if it's lucky to make that, is by the time the dog is seven or eight years of age. And that is literally because the dog is aging and fatiguing at that time. Mm. So it's just at the time where it's just saying, oh, fuck, I'm not going to put in any more struggle anymore. But if you did it properly, by the time the dog is two years old, you've got the rest of the dog's life to enjoy Mm. because you've put in – And it doesn't have to be two years. I'm not saying it's two years. It's usually two years for trials. Like I know people who have done 
exceptionally good work, let's say containing behaviour to be suitable to the household within a 12-month period and done it easy without flattening the dog, without tearing the dog apart, without creating conflict. They've had a lovely relationship. Everything is working exactly what they want. Far be it from me to tell them exactly how to train the dog. All I'm suggesting to them is how to have a better lifestyle with the dog, Yeah, how to integrate better with the dog. And I think for a lot of people who aren't interested in trialing their dog, that's the most important part. Like you said with the lady that you interviewed, the most important part for her is the lifestyle integration. Mm -hmm. I can integrate nicely with this dog and I don't have to be in conflict with this dog all the time. Hey, that's it. You won the internet for the year by doing that. That's Mm. exactly what you need to do. Yeah. Well, that's it for the three the three worst things that new paper can do. Is that what we called the topic? Uh, yeah, the three biggest mistakes. Three biggest mistakes new pet yeah. dog owners make. Yeah, yeah. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from, and then go to another one and do it there as well. No one will know. They don't check. You know they don't check that, don't they? No, you can just write a review on anything you want. You don't have to actually download it. Oh, listen to it or anything. Wow. Yeah. So anyway. That's very insidious. Do that. <laughs> if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Jump in there. A few bucks a month gets you this giant backlog of information as well as more going forward. Ten bucks gets you a live stream once a month. Uh, you can ask whatever questions you want in there. I really enjoy doing those. But you could give as much as you want. You could do whatever you like. i tell you what, there's some great value for money in our Patreon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. There is a lot of quality information, vast, vast majority you have put in there. Mm. Yeah. I, I like doing it. It's fun. Yeah. And I, um, I like watching what you're doing as well. It's uh, I'm working you, on some you, stuff you all the time. Some, yeah, you put some great content in. And, it, and it's never a better time for people to jump in now because it's there's a swag of stuff. Yeah. Oh, mate. If you join today, Jesus Christ, you get a giant backlog. Oh, I mean, it, there is a vast amount of online learning material in there that oh. it's incredible. Other way to support the show is to buy a cool T-shirt. Yep. You could do that via Spring. There's links probably in the show notes. There is. Stuff. Yep. All yep. in the show notes. All, all the links are in there. Yep. So you can jump on a spring, buy yourself a cool shirt. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. There's like 9,000 people in there talking about cool dog stuff. So you can jump in there. But if you want to get in touch with us individually, you should shoot us an email or not individually. What's the term? It, Collectively. Me and Glenn. Yeah. If you shoot us an email, we are info at the paradigm.com. Goodbye. <laughs>